Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Being a parent of a special needs kid is one of the biggest challenges that anyone can face. But an entirely different situation occurs when you are the adoptive parents or foster parents of a special needs child. In many cases, far less information is known until after the child is already in the new home environment. So what happens? How do these families cope and where can they get help? Well, the good news is there are organizations that can help around the United States and in other countries. One such organization is Formed Families Forward, which is located in Fairfax, Virginia. They help families in Northern Virginia who have adopted kids, are fostering kids, or are kinship families for special needs children. In this episode, we talk to two people involved with Forum Families Forward, Kelly Henderson, who is the executive director, and Kimberly Harrell, who is the board chair. They discuss the kinds of services that Forum Families Forward provides, the problems and challenges that adoptive parents, foster parents, and kinship families have, and a whole lot more. But we started off by asking them both to talk about their backgrounds and how they got involved with Foreign Families Forward. Kimberly began first. All right. Well, I began my career, oh, so many years ago now, um, working with foster families and foster children. And um, and then over time, um, started working with adoptive families and always with private agencies. I never worked with a public agency um, directly. And, uh, and then went into private practice. I'm a therapist and I specialize um, in working with these same families. So becoming involved, a, a friend, a colleague actually introduced me to Form Families Forward. And so becoming involved with this organization was just a real natural um, extension of what I do. Another way to support um, the families that um, just hold a really important place in my heart um, and in my life. So um, that's how I ended up here. And I'm I'm really, really happy to be here involved with such a really, um, what I think is an amazing organization. That's fantastic. And Kelly, how did you get involved? Well, I've actually been involved pretty much from the start. So one of the founding board members of the organization and, and I myself am a special educator by profession. I've um, been uh, a special education teacher and then worked in other areas of special education. Um, I now teach at the university, um, the public university nearby teaching teachers to become special educators. Um, so that is, is a professional interest. And then personally, um, our family was formed in part through public foster care and adoption. Uh, and so I have three boys, uh, and two of them joined our family through, uh, foster care adoption, uh, from different local agencies here in Northern Virginia. Um, and all three of my children have special needs of some type. So, um, so this organization really was a, a perfect fit in that it sort of combines, uh, special needs and special education and, disability-centric um, information with the the needs of families that are formed through foster care, adoption, and kinship care. Oh, that's neat. So this is really personal for you, too. Absolutely. All right. Well, how did Foreign Families Forward get started? Was the purpose different in the beginning, or has it grown as you hoped it would? So um, I was, as I said, one of have been involved with Foreign Families Forward from the beginning. And back in um, actually 2010, we started meeting uh, sort of informally with a group of moms that were raising children through foster care, adoption, or kinship care that had a lot of special needs. Their children um, and youth had disability and other intensive needs. We sometimes speak of, of our families as having extra special needs because they have disabilities, but they also then have unique conditions because of the nature of how their family was formed through foster care, adoption, or kinship care that, that adds some extra 
layers. Um, anyhow, this group back in 2010 of, of and then it was all moms at that point. We do like to have dads and, and, and male caregivers involved, but at that point it was all moms. Um, and you know, it was, it was a professional group of women, people who, uh, ranged in careers from attorneys to, to nurses and tax experts and federal employees. And we were not uninformed. We were not um, marginalized by poverty. We were not ourselves victims of horrible experiences with the school system. And yet we were still struggling to meet the needs of our children effectively. Um, and so we realized that there was a population of families, again, these extra special families that really needed extra supports. Um, we are in a generally well-resourced region outside uh, Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia here. Um, and yet we still struggle to get schools and other community agencies and other organizations to understand the deep um, and unique and often intensive needs of our families. So that's really what, what founded us. We uh, became officially a nonprofit in 2011, and then we were able to secure some federal funding uh, in the education, special education arena, to become a community parent resource center. Um, and our first grant was awarded in 2012, and we've had uh, had a variety of, of sources of funding, but that federal uh, community parent resource center has been one of our our core operational uh, supports. All right. Can you talk about the three types of families that you serve there? You mentioned it's foster, adoptive, and kinship families. How do those uh, work and how do those look? All right. Uh, this is Kim, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, let's start with foster. Um, foster families are families that typically work with local public agencies, but not always, sometimes private agencies. That, and I think of it as they care for children that can't be with their birth family. And so that's kind of how I look at, at foster families. Private adoption, these are families or individuals that work with a private agency, so a non-public agency, like not your county agency. Um, they work with these agencies in order to grow their family through adoption. And this is often where you see like infant adoption, a lot of infant adoption this way, international adoption, uh, sometimes adoption of some older children as well, but um, I that's becoming more popular through private agencies now, but um, but that's that's the private adoption piece. And then the public adoption is going back to the foster families we talked about. These are adoptions of children who are at one time in foster care, and then they are now in adoptive homes. So it may be that the foster family they were with adopted them. It may be another family that it was part of the public system um, who was, you know, willing and um, wanted to adopt these children, adopted them. So that's what public adoption is. And then there's formal and informal kinship care. And this is really a family that's caring for a child, um, and they are a relative of that child, or they're a really close family friend of that child. So, um, and here's some really interesting statistics around these things, particularly kinship care. In Virginia, 12% of children are in homes that are headed by somebody other than their birth parent or step parent. And the children in kinship care are the largest portion of that 12%. 2% are in a, children who are in adoptive homes, and then 1% are in public care. So you can see what the, that the biggest portion of those children are in kinship care. 
You know, there's uh, there's been uh, I guess this has always been going on here and there. We I know of stories in my uh, past where I hear about, you know, the grandparent had to step in and take over. But uh, there's becoming more of a formal awareness and a recognition of this sort of thing as far as like uh, agencies and what you guys are doing. Where we're pleased to join with other groups, including some national groups like um, Generations United, that are really uh, strong advocates for grandparents who and others, uh, but largely grandparents, aunts, uncles who are have stepped into this role. Um, as as Kim mentioned, there's formal and informal, and through formal care, where a a child in kinship care may have touched the public system. There may be some financial supports through foster care or other avenues. Um, however, in informal care, uh, where a grandparent or another relative has just sort of stepped in um, uh, without the involvement of a public agency, there is very little financial support. And often the relatives who are caregiving are not even in housing necessarily that uh, is amenable to suddenly raising one or multiple younger children. So they face a lot of challenges. So we really work with our our families to try to find ways to support through creative avenues. But, but there is, as you say, John, a growing recognition of the needs of these families. And our recent public health uh, crisis has elevated, um, I think, attention to that. Uh, so maybe a silver lining that there's more attention to the needs of those particular families. That's great. That's great. Now, of course, we've heard stories time to time about the problematic adoptions for children with special needs. And while each case is unique and there are far more details than a simple tweet can explain or a social media post, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about adopting children with special needs? This is Kim, and I am going to um, take this question. I this is a, a really hard thing. You know, we know that that there are no guarantees when we choose to become a parent, and this is true if we are a parent by birth or adoption, uh, or foster care, or kinship care, whatever. Um, there are no guarantees. There's no way to know um, what needs our children will have. So, as I'm going to focus on your actual question about misconceptions. Um, and in my experience, the biggest misconception that many parents have um, is that if they love their children enough, everything's going to work out. And I'm going to be straight with you. That's not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> It's just not. We need to love our children unconditionally without question. But parenting is hard and often unrewarding work. Um, and many families are simply not prepared for that reality. Um, they think that if they adopt, this child is going to give them something, whatever that something is, and often that child is not able to give them that something, and it becomes really hard. Um, in a perfect world, when people are adopting, they'll have all the information available about this child that's going to be entering their family. They're going to know every little thing. But that just really isn't the case very often. Um, and for so many reasons, this isn't the case. Like, let's just take, for example, an, inter an international adoption. Um, we're dependent on, you know, entities in other countries to provide us with all the information about um, a child that's going to be entering the U.S. And, and that's the really hard thing to, to gather. We don't always have accurate information. Um, Let's take an infant adoption as another example. Um, this child was just born. We don't know 
everything that's going to happen. So there's lots of reasons why we don't have all the information about a child and what their needs might be. Mm-hmm. So a second misconception is that a family can assume they have all the facts about a child. And and that's not the case. Right. You know, and 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 there's there's probably many more misconceptions that we can continue to talk about. But I think Another thing to, to mention here is the best way to combat these misconceptions and others um, is with really solid preparation in the pre-adoptive stage. You know, in Virginia, um, they require a home study process, and it includes a great deal of education and preparation for these kinds of situations. Um, and so, you know, agencies can prepare families for the possibility of these unexpected things that come up with the child, the needs that they may not know about ahead of time. Um, But the other really important piece of this is um, setting up your post-adoptive services, getting the support that you need ahead of time. If you know that your child um, may have special needs or whatever, get it, get Get ready with your support. And this is where this organization, Form Families Forward, is great because we can say, here, here's a list of people that you may need to be in contact. Here's who's in your area. Here's who, you know, like we can help support these families as they're um, coming to terms with the special needs of their children. Mm-hmm. And I think support is the biggest key here, is like you said, because uh, so many parents, even if you have a child that is your own with special needs, there's so many unknown variables out there that, uh, you know, having a good support group and a good uh, group of uh, people who can say, yes, we know about this and this is what's going to happen. Uh, that just makes a huge difference. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Right. One of the uh, unfortunate challenges of adopting kids with or without special needs is the public perception is that, of course, once a child is adopted, that everything is a happy ending after that. But the fact is, formal adoptions are really just the beginning. What are some of the services that Form Families Forward and other groups like yours offer to help the families through all these years after the placement? Sure. Thanks, John. This is Kelly. Um, I'll be glad to answer this this a little bit. We'd love to talk about the range of services that we need, as, as Kim mentioned, um, post-adoption, post-placement, um, regardless of sort of how that family is formed, is really, really important. And often we, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so a lot of what we spend time um, doing at Form Families Forward is is helping families understand options. Um, many of our families, um, as I assume many of your listeners, are raising children with special needs, and there's a whole world of knowledge to be had in the area of special education and accessing disability services and supports. And so we do a lot of our work through trainings um, in, in many in many cases, we're doing that in person. Um, uh, prior, certainly to the public health pandemic, we do a lot of, of trainings in person. Uh, sometimes those are single events. Sometimes those are multiple uh, multiple sessions. Uh, we have events. Often, we try to do events at least quarterly where the whole family can come. We find that our families don't always have a lot of options where they feel comfortable bringing their entire family, especially if there are some behavioral um, or medical issues um, that that their children are experiencing. And so we try to find um, opportunities for inclusive uh, family events. We spend a lot of time consulting with families, and I think that is a um, you know, re- referencing what Kim mentioned in terms of the, the needs of our families and, and sometimes being unprepared for the situations that arise. We spend a lot of time sharing information about 
um, rights and responsibilities on education, um, avenues for getting mental health services, avenues for getting other disability support services, maybe even having basic needs met. So we do a lot of what we call consultations and resource navigations, where we work often in person or on the phone uh, with an individual family. Often families come to us when there is a need that is uh, reaching a critical level. Um, and so we spend time sort of understanding where they are, listening to where they are, listening to the needs, and then uh, making a, an action plan for stepping forward. We operate peer support groups. We have classes for middle schoolers. We've actually just um, started our second section of classes for middle schoolers working on life skills training, uh, which is fascinating to do virtually. Um, as And um, so we, our second virtual class has started. We've been doing in-person classes for middle schoolers for several years. We now have a new respite program um, for kinship caregivers, as, as uh, Kim mentioned. Respite provider, excuse me, kinship caregivers are often um, under-resourced and uh, often have great demands in terms of childcare as well as um, other balancing other needs. And so we have a respite program which provides free uh, care for 10 hours a week for our respite provider. Our, our kinship caregivers um, can can uh, choose their own respite provider and. Uh, get relief for 10 hours a week um, that they don't have to that they don't have to pay for themselves and they can select their respite provider or we have a list of folks that they can that they can pick from who have all been background checked um, so we're trying to meet needs essentially uh, of the families that we serve and covid has has um, has changed a bit of the way we provide services but the core um, needs remain the same and the, the core services are, are pretty consistent well, that's good to know that despite everything going on, you're still able to continue. Now, uh, unfortunately, Hollywood and story writers tend to portray foster families in terrible ways for various plot reasons, and these portrayals are seldom accurate. What are some of the realities of foster parenting, and how does Form Families Forward help? I'd be happy to talk about this. Um, you know, Hollywood Hollywood is Hollywood, and they do gravitate towards things that uh, that get people to watch their shows. And the truth is, there is there are some difficult situations, um, you know, in foster care. But there's also some really, really wonderful stories about foster care. But the the truth of it all is that foster parenting is challenging. Nobody signs up to be a foster parent because they think this is going to be, you know, a walk in the park. Um, you know, there is, there's a lot of things that happen um, with foster families. Like, for example, you know, we often focus on how hard it is to parent, right? Like the kids can be difficult or there's challenges and things like that. But there's also this piece of the pain and the heartache that foster families experience when a child that has been in their home and a part of their family and they've loved and cared for that child and become attached to them has to move on because that is often a part of foster care. And by moving on, I mean they they go back with their birth family, which is wonderful if that reunited you know, experience can happen. Um, or for other reasons, they have to move to a different placement. Um, now, foster families are trained to handle this and they're prepared that this is what's gonna happen, but that doesn't diminish the pain and the heartache that happens. And, um, you know, Form Families Forward really wants to support all families, but particularly when it comes to this, um, helping foster families understand the, you know, how this happens and how we can support them. Also to support, you know, their knowledge and understanding of social, emotional, and behavior challenges, giving them tools and techniques for managing those things, like 
for example, um, what are some of the tough parenting challenges they're going to face? I mentioned that a minute ago. Um, what, what can you do? What, what resources do we have available to help them as parents? What resources do we have available to help the, the children that are in their care? Um, you know, counties that have foster care systems are actually, I, in my experience, and Kelly may feel differently about this, pretty good about preparing foster families. Um, you know, some better than others, but like, you know, get them ready for the things that they're going to face. But that doesn't take away the need for organizations like this to step in and support as well. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we have seen and experienced is um, sometimes because families are considered foster families, I've got some air quotes going on here, um, you know, they don't get the attention that they deserve. For example, we feel like very strongly that social services, people in education need to listen to these families. These are the families that are on the front lines with these children. And, um, and we, would, we would ask that they, they listen to what we are saying about the behaviors of the child, what's going on with the child, um, and honor the feedback of the foster families. Um, so, I mean, I, that's partly answering your question, but um, I hope I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing a good job with that one. No, that's you're doing great. It's a very complex issue, you know, and I think a lot of people there's just a general misunderstanding of uh, the exact ins and outs of it because it's also it's a, it's a very different situation for each family as to why they're doing it and how they're doing it, and uh, you know it's it's difficult when people try to lump everything into just one category and say well this is this because of course it's not. That's right. Right. So what are some of the current challenges that families are facing with special needs education during our COVID-19 pandemic? And how have you guys have been able to adapt in moving many of your services for families online? Thanks, John. That's a really good question. And I think the challenges that families are facing are probably very familiar to your listeners um, by the time they, they hear this because the COVID-19 pandemic has had such comprehensive and deep impacts um, for families, especially if, if um they have needs that were typically being met in person at school and in community, and those options no longer exist. So I think our special needs families are really impacted in many ways, and obviously very unique ways to, to their specific families. We have, on the whole, tried to move and be adaptive and responsive to uh, the training and support needs. Um, some examples of that is we have ongoing virtual, we have ongoing peer support groups called Stronger Together. Those groups have moved uh, virtually. So as of the middle of March, we moved those groups to an online format and we have groups for youth and we have groups for parents and caregivers. And we moved both of those groups to online formats and actually increase the intensity. So they were twice a month and we moved them to weekly groups through the end of the school year. Um, so that is one immediate response we had. We've obviously ended and temporarily our in-person trainings and we had several events that had to be canceled, uh, particularly a big spring forward uh, family fun day that we have had as an annual event was scheduled for uh, May and that was unfortunately postponed, uh, and that, that was a disappointment, but we've tried to replace that with more online uh, and virtual learning options. So we've used a lot of webinars. We've created a number of videos um, that are available for you know on-demand replay. 
We've increased our social media um, uh, offerings. Um, we post very frequently now on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Form Families Forward. Um, and we have, with the assistance of some, some um, sharp young interns, uh, just started an Instagram presence. Um, so we are expanding our social media offerings. Uh, we also are on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Um, we've had uh, some virtual conversation sessions with families and educators. So having a professional educator and family members in the same space uh, virtually and having some conversations about what, for example, um, families can do at home to support their children's learning that happened throughout spring. And then we've had a more recent one about summer programming and supports. We really are also working to support families, particularly our kinship families who might not be as facile with the technology uh, needs of online learning. And we've been trying to find ways to support them in uh, even understanding what the options are um, in, in our virtual learning uh, platforms. And obviously that varies in our area by school district. Um, and even school, different offerings are available for different families. And so sometimes we just need to help families understand who they need to contact, what technology they might need, what supports are available, what they can be asking for. Because as we said earlier, you don't know what you don't know. And so just being able to ask the right people the right questions to get your, your needs met um, is helpful. So that's that's some of the response we've had to COVID. That's fantastic. Now, you also offer training for families in education, disability, mental health, and other topics. What are some of the issues that you address and help with in these training sessions? I would say that there's sort of three core areas of, of, of content that we get a lot of requests for and we we do a lot of delivery in. Um, and that's special education, really understanding the special education process, understanding uh, dispute resolution, understanding um, opportunities to have leverage in those conversations. What as a parent or caregiver can you do to be prepared for that individualized education program meeting? Um, what things as an adoptive parent, for, for example, might you want to have included in the this statement of present level of performance to share key critical information that might be relevant to an adoptive family uh, that that school personnel should know. So special education is definitely sort of a big, a big chunk of what we talk about. Another big chunk, uh, and probably not a big surprise given what we've talked about so far, is really thinking deeply about trauma, the impact of trauma, understanding trauma, um, developmental trauma, historical trauma, situational trauma, um, chronic trauma, and really helping families and the educators and other professionals that work with our families understand the impact of trauma on children and on youth and on families and why that impact might indeed have some negative impacts educationally, um, might have some negative impact socially, uh, might have some negative impact behaviorally, and helping people really understand how to address those impacts. We spend a lot of time on those topics um, and how to build resilience. And then I'd say the third big chunk of topics that we often talk about are more disability-specific topics. So we have a lot of families that have children that are on the autism spectrum. Um, we have a lot of families who have children and youth with diagnoses of ADHD. Um, we have lots of families who have children who have fetal alcohol and other prenatal exposure. So helping those families 
understand the implications of those diagnoses and um, treatment options, and again, the educational overlay on those. So what, what does that mean in the classroom if we know that our child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? What what strategies, what accommodations might a family want to request? So those are, we, we certainly cover other topics. We've done things like um, having write, memoir writing sessions that are more focused on self-care for families. We've talked about advocacy um, and helping families be stronger advocates. Um, but but those, three, those three big chunks, special education, trauma, and disability-specific concerns, I think would, would cover a lot of what we do. That's great. And I, I'd want to back up a second, too, and uh, comment about the trauma issue, because I think a lot of people, there's a tremendous misunderstanding about the word trauma and the implications, because, uh, you know, it, it's more of a personalized thing in that what may be just a simple thing for some people uh, it can actually be a traumatic experience for others based on what the person uh, is going through at the time. And I think that's uh, a definite need out there is for a better understanding of how traumas can affect people over the years and what may have seen something simple at one point. It turns out to be this whole big thing. And uh, it's nice to see that more of this is being addressed through uh, programs like the kind that you offer. Yep. Yeah, we talk actually in trauma, we talk about a definition, a national definition of trauma with three E's, um, and it's about experiences, something has happened to the child, um, and uh, and uh, an event or a series of circumstances has happened, so that's the first E is event, and how that is experienced, I think that's really what you're talking about, John, is that it's a unique um, response to every individual. An event can happen, but, but how Kim interprets that event and takes that event in and processes that event is very different perhaps than how I would do that. And so that experience is the second E. And then the third E in the definition of trauma is, is that has to have long lasting, long standing adverse effects. Um, and so those are, that's, you know, we, that helps, I think people understand that we're not talking about just, you know, a, a, a little fender bender on the way to work that was concerning for the day. We're talking about things that really have deep developmental impacts um, or could have deep developmental impacts on a child and their family. One of the more impressive services that you offer is called Stronger Together Peer Support Groups for age 14 to 22-year-olds. These are kids who have lived experiences in some or all of the service areas that you provide. How do the kids respond to being able to talk to other kids in similar situations? Yeah, we're really pleased to have been able to offer this for now, I think, six years. Um, and it is, it is uh, one of the few opportunities for youth to actually come together, especially youth under 18, to come together um, and have time with each other. And and our in-person Stronger Together groups have been well-received. Um, they are not limited to foster, adoptive, and kinship families. We really open that we want it want um, participation by anyone who feels the need, as long as they have sort of touched one of the child-serving systems. Um, so they could be receiving special education, they could be in foster care, they could have been in foster care, they could be in a kinship situation, they could have had other contacts with social services or juvenile justice. Um, so basically their participation is, is completely their call. There's no there's no box that we're checking. So they come to the, the meetings. Um, they are facilitated by professional clinicians, counselors, and psychologists. Um, and uh, they spend time um, connecting with each other, supporting each other, learning some new skills, having pizza, having cookies, uh, which is an important uh, piece we are learning when we are in person. Um, and they really, it, it's in, those sessions are... Um, 
an hour and a half. They're, they're long sessions, and this, the youth and young adults really do seem to resonate with that and really um, like connecting with uh, each other. Obviously, it's not for everybody, but we encourage families to to um, give it a try and see if it's going to work for their child. And like I said, we even have young adults who come on their own. And so um, uh, it seems to be a good avenue for some for some individuals. Now, have these gone to online meetings since obviously uh, the pandemic started? Yes, yes. We moved our virtu- our uh, Stronger Together groups virtually um, immediately in March. Um, we have, a, in addition to the youth and young adult group, we have a parent and a caregiver group, and that group really took off virtually. They were much more comfortable, I'd say, than the youth, in, which surprised us a little bit. Um, they were much more comfortable meeting virtually. They liked connecting um, uh, through virtual means, and we, we moved those to a weekly occurrence. And again, they were also facilitated by clinicians, and, and, we, and we did that through the end of the school year um, uh, as soon as COVID hit, and we will restart those in fall. So those were very well received in a, in a virtual format. That's great. Well, probably because of the commute being non-existent. It's, it's a little easier to uh, get on the computer than it is to drive somewhere sometimes. Absolutely. Okay, so what are some of your favorite success stories from families who've been using your services? You know, I, I would imagine that there are more success stories than we even know. Um, you know, the type of support that we give to families doesn't always demonstrate like immediate and obvious results. Um but in my opinion, well, here's what I think about. I think about the success stories of the families who are struggling and searching for how to find support and guidance for themselves, and they find Form Families Forward, and they get on the phone with somebody as wonderful as Kelly, and they find here a, a safe place to get support, help, kindness, um, and they breathe this sigh of relief knowing that they have found an ally, somebody who's going to help them figure things out. I think that is an ongoing success story. I also think about the young person who's in one of these groups, maybe the Stronger Together group or has done something else and picks up a new skill that somehow you know, helps them in their relationships and they build better friendships or um, helps them in some kind of a job skill like interviewing process or something that just makes their life better. I think we don't always see all those success stories, but I think that they are common and ongoing. But then there's like the specific things. And I think that that's what you're asking about. Um, And one of the success stories that that I can think of that I, I'll try not to use too much identifying information, but, um, you know, a, a family that um, had older youth um, that they were adopted from the foster care system, you know, worked with Farm Families Forward, um, you know, to get support and help, and they participated in trainings and, um, and even ended up taking on significant leadership roles within the organization. And as a result, you know, their, one of their sons, there were two sons, um, he is now in an, in an apprenticeship. Um, you know, issues continue as they always will with all of our families, um, but, you know, Form Families Forward help them get the services that they need, um, mental health support, educational support, and, um, and we just see a lot of success in that family. And, um, and that's demonstrated by the fact that that family felt strongly enough, strongly enough about this organization that they um, they maintain a leadership role here for some time. So 
that's a, a success story. Kelly, do you have any other ones like that you can think of? Yeah, and I think you make a really good point, Kim. It, 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 it's a um, um, success story almost assumes there's an end, and there's not an end for a lot of our families that that um, and like like many of your listeners, John, uh, that are that are raising children with special needs, we we find our successes, um, we get over one hill, and then we realize there may be another hill in front of us. And so we we see families cyclically sometimes. They they work with us for a while, they resolve a particular issue, we don't hear from them for a while, and then and then six months later they give us a call because something else has popped up. So um, they're almost little mini mini success. Um, vignettes uh, rather than one, than one story. But I was thinking of a, of a kinship um, family. This is actually an aunt and uncle uh, kinship situation. Uh, and they had unexpectedly been given the opportunity to raise a nephew uh, that uh, due to the due to some um, mental health and substance abuse issues of the child's birth parent. Um, they came into contact with us uh, um, I think someone had referred them to us, a, a social worker had referred them to us, and we began working with them. Um, the child had some special educational needs, had some mental health needs. Um, and so we talked through, because they hadn't really dealt with those systems uh, in our region prior to having this nephew in their care, we talked a lot through different options. We know the school systems in our area, so we were able to give some guidance in terms of um, who they might want to talk to, what specifically they might want to ask. Um, I think this young man had a 504 plan at that time, but um, I think that now does have an IEP. The family attended um, a number of our events, brought their nephew with them to one of our family events. And then just recently, and the reason this, this family came to mind is because they joined us for one of those conversations um, between educators and family members that we had virtually. Um, and she was able to, the, the aunt, the kinship aunt was able to share some of the challenges that they're facing right now with the COVID situation and other families were able to, and the educator that was um, as part of this conversation, able to give some suggestions. I mean, it was a really nice exchange. Um, and so we continue to have the relationship with that family uh, and their needs are gonna continue to change and our responses are gonna hopefully be accommodating to, to them as they continue their journey. That's great. That's great. You know, and it's like you say, it, the success stories are more like an individual moment. You know, we have a, okay, we've resolved this issue for now. And then a few weeks later, a few months later, who knows how long it is, there's another issue. And it's just ongoing like that. But um, it's it's nice to know that uh, support uh, organizations like yours are able to help out. Okay, so what would you say to an individual or a couple or an existing family who has it in their heart that they want to begin fostering or adopting a child with special needs, but they have no experience in the area? I like, I like the way you worded that, has a desire in their heart. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a great place to start with that desire, but I do feel it's important for that desire in their heart to grow into um, an understanding in their head <laughs> of of what this is. Intention here is really, really important. Um, a true examination of why this is something that they want to do. Um, I think that's the, you know, to kind of answer your question, that's the first place to start. Why are we doing this? Why is this desire here? Um, what does this mean for us? You know, making sure they're not, you know, um, doing it to meet some need for themselves, because this is truly, at the end of the day, meeting um, the need for a child um, and not filling a, a place or a hole or a, 
or whatever in their own lives. Um, and I think that's a hard thing for people to hear, but I think it's really important when you when you start this journey because if your intention is skewed, um, it's going to make this a much harder road. Um, and once that discernment is addressed and and um, and and this is the right road for our family to go down, um, then I think the next thing is education. You know, educate yourself on what does it mean to be the parent of a child with special needs? What does that look like? I mean, special needs is a really broad category. So families can look at, here's the special needs that we feel we can handle as a family. Like being really, truly honest with yourself about what we are prepared to handle is extremely important. You don't want to take on more than you are able. And that doesn't make you a bad person or a bad family, that just makes you honest. It's just, there's too many special needs to put them all in one category, so that's, it's important to really think about that. Um, and and that's a hard thing to do. You wanna get some help here, you know, whether it's through an agency or somebody else who's gonna help you with that part of the process. But once that's sorted out, it's time to prepare. You know, how do we prepare to be a family who's going to um, work with a child with special needs, um, find an agency, public or private, um, whatever is right for you, that's going to help you get ready. This is not something you can do all on your own. Um, it's kind of a big undertaking, um, you know, and that will give families a lot of um, opportunity to say, yes, this is definitely right with us, We right for us. We have a lot we have to do here and train. and Or it may say, you know what, we thought this was for us and maybe it's not. Um, but agencies will help you get ready. Um, and, and I'd also recommend, and I had mentioned this earlier, but this is really important. When you know for sure that you are going to work with a child with special needs, get, get your support system ready. Get it ready before that child's in your home. Um, whatever that may need to be, and this is another place that Foreign Families Forward can step in and help, you know, um, because once the child is in your home, it's you don't have necessarily the time or the energy to get that support system set up. So if it can be set up ahead of time, that's fantastic. Uh, so that's my initial thought on that. I don't know if, Kelly, you would add anything to that? No, I think you you covered that. I think um, the, the importance of being open to the unknowns is really, really key. And having a support structure, both professionally of mm -hmm. professionals and of extended family members and of others who have lived this experience. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of, we talked about the support groups of, of kinship, um, excuse me, kinship caregivers and parents. Um, and that has been huge. It's just while, while they are facilitated by professionals, it's the connections between family members between the parents that have been so powerful that they they do not feel that they're living this alone that they have others that have walked this this path before them and that's that's powerful so the uh, the services offered by Forum Families Forward is primarily for the Commonwealth of Virginia how can people who live in other parts of the United States uh, find services that are similar to the ones that you offer in their areas we get that request a lot. Um, are there other FFF Forum Families Forwards uh, elsewhere? Um, so the answer, this particular structure, not so many like us exactly, but there are there are lots of great national organizations that do have then referrals or resource uh, directories that that give 
individuals, individ, individuals who are in states or different regions, some somebody to contact. So I'm going to mention a couple of those. The North American Council on Adoptable Children. That's a mouthful. Some people just call it NACAC. N-A-C-A-C, and that's N-A-C-A-C.org, is a wonderful organization that covers Canada and the United States and has a wonderful uh, directory by state of, of other resources that adoptable, adopted families um, uh, can, can refer to. Uh, foster parents, the National Foster Parent Association and the Child Welfare League of America are both organizations that have um, tools to uh, help folks get to their state and local um, support systems. Generations United, I mentioned earlier, is a wonderful national group that focuses a lot, not exclusively, but a lot on the needs of grandparents who are raising children um, of relatives. Uh, so I'm just going to go over those quickly again. NACAC, the North American Council on Adoptable Children, the National Foster Parent Association, the Child Welfare League of America, and Generations United. All of them have some type of resource navigation on their on their websites. And finally, if you're uh, raising a child with uh, special needs, disabilities, um, regardless of how your family is formed, birth, step-parenting, foster, adoptive kinship, there is a, um, a wonderful network of parent centers, um, what we call our PTIs, Parent Training Information Centers, in every state has at least one of those. Big states like California have multiple centers based on region, and those are funded by the U.S. Office of Special Education Programs. We are one of those centers that is funded as a community parent resource center focusing on an underserved population here in Northern Virginia. Um, but that is a wonderful network of uh, resources and folks that are available by phone, um, electronically. All of those centers are working through COVID. Um, they're federally funded, and so they're there to help any family that's raising a child, and that's birth through age 25 um, uh, that have a disability and may have needs developmentally, educationally, behaviorally, and can make some of those connections and supports for you. My thanks again to Kelly Henderson and Kimberly Harrell of Forum Families Forward for talking to us for this episode. We have the links to all the organizations that Kelly mentioned on the page for this episode at SpecialParentsConfidential.com. As always, if you like this episode or any episode we've done, be sure to share it with all your favorite social media sites. We have buttons for some of the more popular social media avenues like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn and others on the website page for this episode and all of our episodes. You can also sign up for our email list to have new episodes sent to your inbox as soon as they're available. Also, feel free to join our Facebook group where you can comment on episodes and communicate with us more easily. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.